Hi, I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. Today, we are going to be doing a little bit of something different, uh, discussing the executive order that was just issued um, on diversity training, um, the executive order on combating race and sex stereotyping, um, and our feelings and thoughts on that. Patricia, you wrote an article about it this week, so I don't know if you want to give us a little sense of kind of what the article was, and then maybe we can dive into our thoughts on the executive order itself. Yes. So I wrote an article that basically highlighted a little bit of what the executive order is. We encourage you to read it yourself. Um, so we'll definitely have a link to it so you can look through the whole thing um, and really understand what it says directly. But what I wrote about was just how the confusion behind the order. So in case you don't know, it is about diversity training. And basically it applies. So there was one order that was filed at the beginning of September And then this order was filed September 22nd. So it kind of extended the original order um, to federal contractors and grant recipients. So basically what it is, is it's an order. It doesn't, people say the word banning. It doesn't really ban diversity training, but it puts a lot of restrictions on diversity training that are confusing and disappointing in a lot of ways. Um, So Basically, it's calling out diversity training as being divisive and that divisive content cannot be used within these types of training um, sessions and divisive concepts are in section two. So if you're looking at it, go to section two and there's, I think, let's see, eight or nine of them, nine of them Mm -hmm. of these divisive concepts. And basically it's about, you know, not being able to say a race or a sex is inherently superior to another race or sex, which good news, diversity training doesn't do that. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of things in it in the terms of those divisive concepts that actually don't happen in diversity training. But then there are some areas where there's um, some confusion and potentially areas for concern. So I feel like that's super vague. I don't know if I really answered your question, Katina. No, that's good. That's good. I think, and that's basically, I think why we're doing the episode is to speak on this topic as people who have been doing and continue to do a lot of diversity and inclusion training within organizations. And so we have a lot of experience in seeing the really positive outcomes that can happen for everybody when these diversity and inclusion trainings occur. Um, We see really positive forward progress in organizations in terms of fairness and equity, um, such that organizations move more closely towards having Uh, organizational structures and systems where everybody is treated fairly and not with regard to their race or sex or any other identity that might cause people to be treated unfairly within a system. So we see these trainings as actively bringing to uh, fruition some of the outcomes that are highlighted here as being positive, like making sure that people are not treated differently because of their demographic identities. Um, But unfortunately, in order to get to that place we need to talk about what the problem is like why is that not the current state of affairs in many organizations and if you look at the data as we have in many organizations and also just the research on this topic area unfortunately you know the data shows that unconscious bias and conscious biases show up in the way that organizations are structured in the systems and structures, if you look at who's on executive leadership teams, if you look at the way that people move throughout organizations, if you look at the kind of feedback people get, the kind of mentoring people get, there's tons of research on this that shows that 
currently we're we're not actually performing equal outcomes and so unless we address why that is or what the problem is we can't move past into sort of the future that this executive order kind of paints as already having come to light and so I think that's the biggest miss here is that it's sort of assuming that we've already fixed a lot of the issues that are causing inequity in organizations and that now we need to sort of move to a new level when the reality is many organizations still have these problems and uh, will continue to have these problems unless we're able to actually speak about what the issue is. So um, I think that we feel passionately about this because we've seen the good that these kinds of trainings can do in starting really important conversations that the research shows when organizations are more fair and people are treated equitably, everybody benefits, not just minority group members. Everybody benefits when people perceive the organization as being fair. But we can't get to that place unless we have really honest and open conversations with each other about where the problems sit. And it feels like this executive order is precluding those kinds of really important conversations that organizations need to have to get to that place. Yes, exactly. I think the biggest concern for me is the same that you mentioned here. It's really, how are we going to talk about the issues with race when there are, um, you know, when we're not talking about it directly, when we're not actually able to discuss what's going on in the society around us. So we can't really fix any issues or challenges that organizations are facing if we can't talk about the problems. And this kind of applies to, I mean, not kind of, it definitely applies to society as a whole. Uh, So one of the divisive concepts is that the United States is fundamentally racist or sexist. And it's a very simplistic statement. And Unfortunately, there's a lot of racism and sexism within our systems in the in the country, in our society, in our governments. So having such a simplistic view on it as being a divisive concept means we don't get to talk about the broader issues outside of the company that you're in. Granted, most of the time within diversity trainings, you're kind of focusing internally within the company. How can we address systemic issues within the organization? But those stem from broader concerns and issues. And sometimes they come up. Sometimes people, you know, may have questions as to why certain groups aren't, you know, seen or represented as frequently in certain levels of organizations. And if that's the case, then you know, we're not able to talk about if diversity trainers aren't able to talk about the broader perspective, right? Like concepts like redlining concepts like, um, you know, if we go back to like Jim Crow era laws and things like that, that prevented groups from getting the same opportunities, um, then we can't really articulate the systemic issues why organizations have challenges too. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. And I think that I think that organizations, institutions in general, and society are microcosms of the culture that they're in. And so, you know, while we are not trying to say that anything, any person, any entity is fundamentally racist or sexist, because there's another uh, piece of this that basically says you can't say that one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. So you can't say that any person of any race or sex is inherently racist or sexist or oppressive consciously or unconsciously no one in any of these diversity trainings would ever say like you're born inherently racist or sexist or no one would ever say like an institution is fundamentally unchangeably inherently this way right the idea is that we all create 
and co-create on a daily basis social systems that maintain a particular order. And our history is huge in that, right? So you can even think about it in terms of a smaller unit and take a completely non-controversial stance. Like you think about a family, right, that has certain patterns and certain ways of relating. So maybe you have two people in a family that don't get along, right? And those people don't historically get along over the course of decades, let's say. And then they finally make up. And then in the decades to come, their relationship might grow better, right? But it may not be the same as a relationship where two people have had a good relationship from the very beginning in that family, right? Like your history matters to your present and to your future. And it matters the same for a small group, a larger group, and an even larger group. So we're not saying that the United States is fundamentally anything or people are fundamentally anything. But what we are saying is that we have created a system that if you look at any any uh, leadership board of organizations, if you look at the way our government is structured and just look at who is in positions of power in society demographically, like we are only 53rd in the world in terms of rankings for gender parity, right? There are a lot of other countries that have made more progress in terms of gender equity than we have. That means that no country is inherently anything, but certain countries have made more progress towards erasing barriers to parity than others, right? And so um, while we're not saying that this is like an immovable thing or the United States should like spend, you know, all of our time thinking about or reflecting on what has happened before without thinking about the future, what we could create together, it's impossible to create an accurately inclusive future unless we take into consideration all of the barriers and challenges that might be in play. And that's basically what these diversity trainings try to do. Like what has been happening in your organization? What are people bringing with them to the table? What's the history of this organization? How does it operate in a broader cultural context? And how can we actually tackle the issues that are occurring within the walls of this place so that we can create a future that's actually going to come to fruition in the way that we expect it to because we're taking all of the factors into account that might play a role in holding us back from that future. And one of those things or a major part of that is how have things been happening? How have decisions been made? How are people being promoted? Are people using personal networks? Who's likely to be more networked? Like who's likely to slip through the cracks? Like those are questions that we need to ask in order to create that future. And sometimes those the answers to those questions have nothing to do with these kinds of biases. They might have to do with other kinds of biases where people went to school, things like that. Um, but sometimes they do have to do with these kinds of biases. And so being unable to name those biases in a training really does a disservice to being able to move things forward in a productive manner. And I think that's uh, that's a big a big issue with this executive order is like we're not saying that anything is immovable, but we are saying that we learn things from our environment. We learn things from the country we grew up in, the state we grew up in, the city we grew up in, the family we grew up in. like, And we bring those things with us to work. And unless we're going to address those things, we're never going to be able to get a more equitable future that we all want, right? Yeah, exactly. The one thing that's interesting to me, and maybe, I don't know, I'd be curious to know what you think and for what our listeners think if they read through the order themselves. You know, the first section is basically like the reason why this is happening, like why this was um, created and what kinds of trainings perpetuate stereotypes and division and blah, blah, blah. The second section, though, is like really gets to the meat of what, you know, what are divisive concepts that you have to avoid? What are these different things? But I find it so interesting because if you read through them really carefully, you can make an argument for every single one that that's already not happening. And there's no reason why there's this order even matters because 
What training is talking about an individual's moral character is necessarily determined by his or her race or sex? Zero. Not right. one. Right. Um, even concepts like meritocracy, which I know um, a lot of people like to believe we live in a society where, you know, everything is purely merit-based. We know that's not true. But the the statement about meritocracy in here is meritocracy or traits such as hard work ethics are racist or sexist and were created by a particular race to oppress another race. And does anybody know exactly how our meritocracy was created in every single component of it? And is a meritocracy truly a system or is it a belief that is, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I feel like there's just so many yeah. holes here where it's not like, I think there's going to be a lot of fear yeah. from this order. I think there's gonna be a lot of concern from this order from organizations that are trying to do diversity training or like really jumping into it after the black lives matter movement resurged um, this summer. And I think that the thing that I'm most concerned about with this with this order is that fear is Mm -hmm. people putting this aside because they don't want to get in trouble. But when you actually read deeply into it, you can argue that your trainings are probably not doing any of the things that are described. Yeah. I think, you know, to the point of the meritocracy piece, like, yes, in these trainings, we talk about the idea that you can put in the same amount of hard work as another person and be viewed differently for that amount of hard work. And if you think about how that's played out for uh, sex or how it's played out for race in the past, uh, we have, you know, uh, plenty of data that demonstrates that you have to actually work harder to prove yourself. If you have a particular identity, that's not common within that industry because when people see a leader They associate that leader with different prototypes and it's based on your past experiences. So if I've never seen a leader that looks like you before, never worked with a leader that looks like you before, I'm going to view you as less fit for that position because I've never seen someone who looks like you do it. So you have to be even more competent to convince me that you're good at that role because you have a a little bit of a deck stacked against you in terms of whether or not I'm going to see you as a fit for that position. And so the idea that people have to work harder in a system to get the same outcome is not something that we shouldn't be discussing, but no one is something we should be discussing, right? Because that's an inequity, but no one is saying like you're mentioning that this system of meritocracy um, is, is created particularly for this purpose consciously by other individuals in a corporate diversity training. Now, like if we go to like a sociology class or something like that, there's a possibility that people might talk about how these things come about or how did, how did we, why do we cling so hard to this idea that merit is the only thing that matters? What's driving that clinging? Um, But, you know, in organizations, it's really important to recognize that like the basic principle of this is if there are some people who are working twice as hard to get the same outcome, that's problematic because even from a pure efficiency standpoint, like people are putting tons of time and energy into doing their job that they could be putting into being in the next level up and like really showing all their talents and skills. And you're missing out on those talents and skills because people are burning energy in a way that they don't have to be. So I think like that's basically part of, part of all of this, I think is that there's a, a fundamental, uh, like you're saying, a fundamental misunderstanding of what actually happens in diversity training. So I'm curious, like what kind of diversity trainings these folks have seen, because I have been teaching diversity and inclusion classes to MBA students and undergraduate students um, for the last uh, 11 years. 
I have seen nothing but extremely positive outcomes come from those conversations in terms of the students, their progress in thinking about how to be more equitable, the outcomes even of the relationships to people in the classes. Like, um, And we talk about these ideas not in the way that they're put in here because I don't know anyone that really talks about them in the way that they're put in here, but we talk about these ideas, right? Um, like, for example, um, the idea they, they call out in here that you can't say that people are color that you can't say that people aren't colorblind. People aren't colorblind. That's a fact. If I if I came up to you on the street and said, you know, you have 10 seconds to tell me what race this person is, you would know. If I asked you to guess at the sex of a person, you would be aware. Like that is a fact that people see these things. Ignoring that people see it is an issue, right? Because then we can't get it like well, what's the actual problem? We can't just say people are colorblind, race blind, et cetera, because it does register to you what race a person is. You know what, if you had, if you were put on the spot and pressed, you could say, you could at least guess, right? And probably have a pretty high accuracy in terms of your guess. So some of these things that we do talk about in class, like why is it important not to just pretend like we don't see this and to address the ways in which seeing it might impact the way that we think? Does it impact everybody? all the time in the same way no but for people who have never actually thought about that or examined how a person's race might impact the way they think about them or the way a person's gender might impact the way they think about them like all of those things are important to explore in yourself because it's not until you explore them that you can really figure out whether or not there's an issue so there are some things in here that I think are misunderstandings of what the intent of the conversation is, is more like a self-reflection and exploration to be able to overcome hurdles that you might have to being a more equitable leader or citizen and not a blaming of individuals for having those beliefs, which is not something that I've seen work and it's not something that I see people do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen anyone do the things that you mentioned as well. You know, I've been through a number of diversity inclusion trainings as an employee, Obviously, we've run plenty, um, and I've never seen these the concepts used in the way that they describe here. Um, and honestly, if you're looking at the purpose statement and the, the examples provided from different organizations, we're not getting the full picture because we're only seeing quotes around a couple words here and there. So we don't fully understand what the materials are, and it would be, I would personally believe that some of the materials, you know, maybe look bad initially from this perspective, but if you were to actually look at the full materials, it would not be the case. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really important to know that the the goal of diversity inclusion training is to bring people together and to create inclusive work environments. It is not to divide. And so as you were saying, the purpose of these trainings, the purpose of what's being done um, isn't to blame, isn't to make one group feel bad about anything it's about bringing everyone together to understand that b these biases exist these systems exist how can we overcome them to be one whole unit um, an organization that is working effectively efficiently and fairly so that everyone can have um, you know can be part of an inclusive environment and I think it's really um confusing and unfair to make it seem like these trainings are meant to separate out certain groups I mean that that's just not the case it's not something that we've ever done and usually like you said people leave them feeling empowered to do something to help and I'm talking about people of all races and genders feel that way mm -hmm. um 
you know, white men leave those groups feeling excited and empowered to do something. And so do black women. It's everyone kind of leaves them in a similar way, assuming they have a good training that is. Um, and I think that it's, it's misleading to, to act as if it's dividing people when really it's allowing a conversation to happen that people have been scared to have. And now they're able to have it together. And you'd be surprised how many people in groups will talk about their own biases and it won't just be the white man that's talking about his bias. It's everybody. We all have biases and we just need to learn how to overcome them and, um, and be cognizant that they exist and be able to work through systems to make them more equitable so that we can remove these issues and create an environment where our employees are thriving, are effective, are creative, are collaborating together and just happy. We can make a much better work environment for everybody involved. And as a happy um, result of that would be to have the business do well as well. So I yeah. think that there's a lot that uh, that is being missed when you read this order. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that something really important to recognize is that the kind of feedback that we receive after having people go through exercises that they've never gone through before. And it's not their fault that they haven't gone through it and no one would ever say that it was. Um, but uh, the idea that having people sit down at a table and think, okay, what was my upbringing? What did I learn about people that were different from me? What did I what did I learn about people who were of a different race than me? What did I learn of people who are of a different gender than me or different sexual orientation than me? Um, how did I feel about them? What did I hear other people say about them? How did that inform maybe what I think? Um, how do I feel about people of other religions? How did people of other, how were other people of other religions discussed within my household? Um, a lot of those conversations that happen, you don't really think about how they might inform the way that you lead. But a lot of leaders and and something that we frequently say and that I've seen make a difference with students and also with executives or managers is like we often talk about our upbringing as shaping a lot of characteristics that we have, right? Like, oh, I learned hard work ethic from my parents or I learned the value of a dollar from my grandfather or I learned the importance of community from my aunts and uncles, whatever the case may be. But when it comes to learning negative things, we're really hesitant to embrace that idea that maybe in our upbringings and in our background, we might have also learned along the way some things that shape our thinking in a way that's not as positive. And that's okay. Like thinking about and recognizing what you bring with you to the table that may be shaping your pattern of thoughts today, whether you notice it or not, is a really important conversation that I've seen really change a lot of students and leaders and employees' thoughts about this conversation because it's not about there's something wrong with you or you're a bad person or you're inherently something. It's like, oh, you know, Maybe those conversations that my family had about people of a different race within my school or my community actually did impact whether or not I had friends that were of that race. And maybe it impacted who I dated when I was in high school or college or who I considered dating when I was in high school or college. And maybe that lack of connection to individuals who are different from a different racial group from what I'm in, right? Um, leads me to understand a lot more about the nuances of my racial group compared to another racial group. And if I don't really understand fully where people are coming from or have that same connection 
with them that I have with people of my own race. Then when I go to make decisions and I'm trying to figure out who I have a good gut feel about, right, which was what a lot of people use like interviews. And obviously we tell people not to do that, but like, um, but you know, who do I feel comfortable with? Who do I want to work with? That sometimes those, those biases are the ways that we've been feeling more comfortable with or have more exposure to one group than another will pull us in a direction of saying, you know, I, I just feel more comfortable with this person. I don't really know why. And if a lot of people have grown up in more of an environment that's like yours and less of an environment that's like the other groups, those same little things can add up over time. And it's not a situation where we sit in a training and say, you know, you were born inherently racist and that's why you make these decisions, right? We're like trying to really get at the nuances to say, well, what, what are the things that you need to address in yourself or recognize in yourself so you can start to do the work of thinking through what you need to do to be the leader that you want to be, right? Which is extremely, it's extremely rare that anyone ever says like, I want to be a racist, sexist, you know, whatever is leader. Most people want to be an equitable leader, but we can't get to a place of equity unless we address not only the opportunities of equity and how we can build that future together, but also some of the challenges that people will need to overcome. And I think that this is sort of hinting at the idea or, or throwing some barriers in the way or maybe even just perceived barriers in the way of making people think that they can address those challenges that we've seen really make a huge difference in the progress that people can uh, on their journey towards becoming better, more inclusive leaders. I love it. I feel like you should, you just basically taught a class <laughs> right now. You, you gave a little sneak peek into the types of concepts that are really important. <laughs> I love teaching this stuff and I know you really love it too. Like we've had so, I mean, we've, Patricia and I have really had so much enjoyment in, in walking people through this journey and just seeing the positive changes. So that's why it's such a bummer when we see stuff like this come out, that's just like missing the point. It's missing the point of what really happens, potentially creating fear around people doing diversity training. I'm concerned that people won't want to participate in these kinds of trainings anymore, even if they're not federal employees, because they're going to feel like, well, I heard that these things are bad. And so I shouldn't have to sit through this. And um, I think it's creating reactionariness around something that we have really seen bring so much positivity and that, and that's why it's so discouraging. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely very disappointing. Um, I think that you summed it up very well though, with, with your discussion of like thinking back beyond yourself and your, where were you born? What was your situation? And all of that impacts. And I think it's also really important to clarify. It's not like we're saying, you know, your families are bad in these types of conversations either. It's really, you know, there's, a lot of history and if we ignore the history if we ignore you know what happened in the world around us um and in the past in our society then we're not going to get any steps forward that are um you know that are positive and making changes in organizations so that everyone can be included and we don't have to have these conversations anymore like the goal is for diversity training to not have to exist in the future um but right now it does right now we see a lot of you know civil unrest you know we've talked about black lives matter before we see a lot of a lot of issues coming to the the national forefront that have existed for a long time and if we ignore them, they're not going to get better. You know, if you ignore that weird bump, you know, it's not going to go away. It's not going to get better. Well, that's a bad example because people have like 
weird zits or something but <laughs> um, <laughs> I understand but, what you're saying but like there if there's a growth that's not going away it's just going to get bigger and worse and it's not going to go away until you go to a doctor and get it fixed and taken care of and address the issue what is the cause of this problem and I, that's all we're saying is you know these this order is causing confusion but there there's a lot that can be done a lot of benefits that can be found from having these types of trainings to then start removing these issues and concerns um, within organizations so we can start to see more equitable treatment across groups and then the root causes will slowly get better and then we'll be able to get to a society that doesn't need training and an order like this doesn't even make sense yeah 100 percent. and and i i think that's all accurate and you know the the first section of the eo to kind of like start wrapping things here talks about you know Americans have risked their lives to ensure that their children will grow up in a nation living out its creed. All men are created equal. This is what Martin Luther King Jr. said. This is what Abraham Lincoln believed in. And we've made a lot of progress. And basically it's saying that people want to try to act like that progress didn't happen. And we still have these, um, you know, collective and political identities that are causing racist and sexist outcomes. That is all accurate that that is what our country was founded on. Those are principles that many, if not most, people in our country hold very dear in terms of trying to make that a reality. If you look at the numbers and you look at the research in this area, and if you look at even how the U.S. ranks up against other countries, we're not there yet. We're not at a place where we can just say we did it. We achieved equity and we can move on. We, we always need to be in a constant state of trying to improve the extent to which our citizens are treated in the best possible manner with the most human dignity possible. And given what we've seen go on in all areas, uh, you know, students that talk about their companies or experiences that they've had, things of that nature, like we're not there yet. And that's fine. But we don't want to stop making progress because we're scared of recognizing places where we might be weak. Like, to me, being patriotic is recognizing that we have weaknesses and working hard to solve them, not ignoring that we have weaknesses and acting like we've already achieved a goal. Sure, like give credit for what we've achieved, but it doesn't mean we're there yet. We can we can be getting better and we should be getting better. And so I think that the idea of being patriotic by suggesting that our problems are solved is actually a very easy form of patriotism. The harder more patriotic way I think is to continue to strive to make this the best place and to listen to the people that are sharing with us the places where things aren't working and centralizing those conversations and saying okay well if if this organization or this country is not being experienced by you in the same way that it's being experienced by other people let's figure out why that is and how we can work together to change that and to me that is what's patriotic is the person that loves themselves the most is not the person that looks themselves in the mirror and says, I'm perfect and I'm never going to change anything. They're a person that looks at themselves and says, how can I keep getting better? How can I learn more stuff? How can I self-improve? How can I uh, become kinder, uh, more peaceful? Like, how can I be a better friend? Like, that's the person that loves themselves the most because they're investing time and in taking care of themselves and want, and thinking about how they can get better. And it's the same thing for being like stewards of our country. We have to do this um, in order to be people that love this place and want to make it better. So to me, this is not a patriotic stance. This is an easier stance, but it's not the most patriotic. And I would like for us to get to a place where we can 
give ourselves credit for what we've done, recognize the places where we can still get better and move forward together towards the future that was set out in the first paragraph that this EO outlines. Yeah, I really love that. And I love how then you went to the example about a personal uh, improvement because <laughs> as you were talking, I was like, I'm going to give an example about how you wouldn't just give up on yourself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so clearly same brain. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> but I thought that was a really great way to end it because I agree. I think that we can do, you know, we love our country. We're here. We're happy to be here. And I think the the best thing we can do as a society, as a country, is to stand together to create a country that is actually um, a place where everyone can thrive and be happy and get their needs met and have equal opportunities and all of that. Um, So I really do think it's important that we band together instead of apart to make that future. Yeah. So, agreed. (laughs) On that note... Um, thank you all for listening to us kind of change things up a little bit and talk about an area that we're really passionate about and a current event that we thought was really important to shed some light on. Um, you can read our article about this on our website as well, and we'll link to, we'll link to it in the show notes and we'll also link to the executive order so you can, um, read it for yourself and see what you think and, um, how that aligns to what we've said. Um, you can find us again on our website, workerbeing.com. Email us if you have any questions, comments, thoughts at contact at workerbeing.com. And we'd also love to see you on our social media at workerbeing on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. The Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabar and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Oh.